0: Welcome to the Vanderbilt University Medical Center's Faculty Forum, with your host, Matt War Hoover.
1: Yeah, welcome, everyone, to. Uh, Perf Web 80 Day 2, which is the number 10 Vanderbilt University Medical Center Faculty Forum. The, we, we just call it the Vanderbilt Faculty Forum. And uh, so welcome to everyone. And uh, I'd like to jump right in, kind of get moving on our opening remarks to contact us, perfusioneducation.com, uh, contact at perfusioneducation.com. Uh, If you have a question, you want to join our faculty, you want to start doing programs, uh, have your own series on our platform, whatever the case may be, please reach out to us or if you just want to tell us how great we are, whichever you prefer. Call in number uh, if you want to reach out to us is right there on the screen, 832-239-5358. And during the program, you'll see the scroll bar down at the bottom, you can see it now actually right there. And that is going to have all of our information about how to reach out to us, uh, our social media platforms or uh, sites, pages, uh, what our contact info is, call-in number, if you decide to call in at any time during the show, it's right there on the right-hand side, you can see it. And then I uh, will move on from there to the MediWeb app uh, the app is becoming more and more popular. We've done two updates on it. Uh, the most, the the latest update has to do with uh, patients who have refractory lung failure and whether you should choose VV or VA. So it's a algorithm that comes out of the Elso book. It makes it convenient to select the the uh, the most appropriate ECMO VV or VA in that situation and what you should do Um, but it has a lot of other stuff in it too it makes doing your perfusion cases in the morning so much easier and get all of your information that you're going to need for your chart and for planning your uh, perfusion strategy for your case that day and then of course we have the perfweb podcasts where you can listen to programs like this you know we're doing something new i'll sort of talk about that a little bit uh, moving forward with our uh, fireside chat, uh, sort of way of doing things here, which I think, uh, people will find interesting because, you know, you don't have the slides and all of the data and all of the, uh, you know, new, the, the, uh, the, uh, Uh, All the facts that come out from that, though, those are important. But I think having uh, opinions from from people who are so experienced and know so much and uh, are so so, uh, deeply involved in this profession from a very high level, like Matt, uh, who's gonna be on with us here today, and then also like Deb and Anne. So real thought leaders, I think, uh, bring a lot of value in just having opinions about things and being able to look at things from different perspectives. May help you out uh, along the way. Uh, if you want to listen to our podcast, you can go to your favorite podcast streaming platform, Spotify, Podbean, uh, or any of those other things that exist, and you can uh, listen to us on your way to work or while you're driving uh, somewhere or just sitting around uh, drinking some uh, some good quality alcohol, because sometimes you need that too for us. But uh, anyway, let's move on to the introduction of Matt Warhoover, who is the... Uh, program director of the VUMC. Hey, Matt. The uh, hey. VUMC uh, uh, perfusion program at uh, Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. Also, uh, is the. Are you acting now or past president of the Tennessee uh, State Perfusion Society? I, I, I don't want to get that wrong.
0: Uh, we, our, our state uh, society's kind of been dormant for the last couple of years, but uh i, I am the, the the last holding president
1: so you're the so so technically then you are the current acting president that's correct very good okay well we need to get that re-established and do some great things with that i know you've got like me a million projects going at one time and uh, it's, it's a real effort to try to figure out where to put your our attention. And uh, of course, when you th- just when you think you have everything aligned right, somebody comes along with a bowling ball and knocks down all the pins and you got to start putting them all back up again. So I know that's a challenge. But anyway, welcome to the program today. And thank you for participating in this uh, on a continuous basis. I think the VUMC uh, faculty forum has been very popular, and we appreciate it uh, uh, very much. Um, so, welcome. So, we're here today to talk about uh, DCD as a uh, as an up and coming uh, methodology for increasing what will be the next sort of topic as we move forward. Organ availability, which is a, a real, to- is, is just another topic. We could talk about this stuff, I'm sure, all day. And then we wanna talk about not work-life balance, but work-life imbalance. And uh, I think that our profession uh, dictates that we have to be able to accept tremendous amount of imbalance, but yet still be able to live and enjoy our lives and feel that we have a meaning in life other than just the sacrifice of going to work and taking care of, of patients who need us. Um, and it's a very uh, it's a very challenging thing to manage. So, why don't we start off with uh, DCD uh, donation after cardiac death, and maybe you can give us a quick update on where you guys are with that program and how you're uh, looking to develop it further, and whether you see this advancing beyond the shores of the major medical centers like yours and uh, becoming, you know used in more places like i don't even know how many places actually do this how many programs like this exist in the united states or even on a worldwide level so uh, let me let you just go ahead and tell us what you what what you can and i'll try to ask you questions for things that maybe i haven't really quite understood or elucidated from your comments
0: sure and so and dcds have been um been used for thirty or forty years um, when it when it comes to uh, liver, uh, liver and, and, and kidney organ transplants. They were actually they were the first um, organs to be transplanted uh, like that. Um, and to be quite honest, uh, internationally, it uh, it came through um, the last probably five to seven years, and then uh, most recently, I think there's a, probably close to a dozen programs attempting to do this now for, for cardiac.
1: About a dozen so, you say, so about 12, I, about 12 programs looking to do DCD for cardiac surgery for heart transplantation.
0: Yep. yep. And, and the real issue, you know, uh, you know, behind it is there's just a, a, a large mismatch of organs to, uh, you know, available to people that need organs. And so, you know, traditionally these organs, you know, wouldn't be considered Um, at least the hearts wouldn't be considered to be, you know, used and be useful. But, um, you know, we've kind of, we're, we're beyond the, the, the proven model point that we know, we know that, you know, a good percentage uh, upwards of 80 or 90% of people that, um, are able to donate after cardiac death that are under 40, uh, you know,
1: we, we utilize 80 to 90% of those hearts. Wow. But there's a process, right? You have to reanimate these hearts because you're That's allowing correct. the heart. I'm assuming it's from uh, hypoxic. It's it's basically a hypoxic arrest. So they become very, is, uh, is that the process? You have an ischemia, an ischemic period, the heart gives out. And then you have to, because now you have technically a, a global is, biocardial ischemic event take place and you have to reanimate this heart. These aren't, this isn't like postcardiotomy syndrome, reperfusion injury, you know, from a difficult case that had, you know, diffuse coronary disease and you did a valve, mitral valve, you had ischemic MR, and you had a long pump run, long cross clamp time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are hearts that are healthy otherwise with no coronary no atherosclerotic heart disease and you have to allow the patient to heart to stop from from death where they're i guess down on the ventilator they're not breathing they become hypoxic and the heart finally gives out and now you have to resuscitate that heart and get it to where it's functioning normally again which I find a fascinating process
0: Yes, uh, uh, you described exactly correct. Um, You know, we've got, we we usually can get on um, the, the, you know, the, the, I'll call it an ECLS circuit, because that's really what it is. Um, We're able to get on the ECLS circuit with the head vessels clamped. And that's very important that, um, you know, you are reconditioning all the organs uh, from, from, you know, the carotids down. Um, mm-hmm. so there is no blood flow that is, uh, you know, that goes to the brain. That's the idea, uh, about the, the DCD, um, and our NRP, normal, normal regu- regional perfusion. That's what they call it. Mm-hmm. And so you know, they essentially, uh, do a, a really quick sternotomy. Uh, there's usually, so, you know, the patient does become ischemic, um, from hypoxia and, you know. You can see you, the, the patient will Brady down, then usually go into a PEA arrest, and then they're declared. And then depending on uh, institution to institution, it's between a two and a five-minute standoff period from that first declaration. Um, you know, the, the pronouncing physician will check at two or five minutes, and the, then there's a, a death certificate that's issued at that time. And then... The, the uh, abdominal team, if, the, if they're taking abdominal organs, which a good number of the times they are, and then the, our cardiac team, um, they do a, a quick sternotomy. Um, uh, clamp the head vessels. We cannulate um, with uh, a, a, a large dual stage venous cannula. We drain the heart immediately because the heart is distended, it's not beating and it, mm-hmm. it looks as though you know it's it's very you know swollen it's not beating and so the very first thing we do is to try to drain the heart to, to lower the wall tension and and to actually minimize whatever uh, energy is being you know uh, utilized because there is no oxygenation going through it is in an anaerobic state for sure drain the heart um, you know uh, decompress it and then the surgeon, this is probably the most difficult portion of it. They're trying to uh, quickly cannulate without purse strings into a flaccid aorta. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, there's a, uh, there, there's, it takes a couple set of, sets of hands to get that, to put tension, pulling up on a flaccid aorta while trying to cannulate the, uh, the aorta. We go on slow to make sure that we don't, uh, delaminate or cause it aortic dissection get the, uh, aorta, you know, filled back up. We get a good pressure. And then, you know, one person holds the aortic cannula in while the purse strings are are put around it. Mm -hmm. Um, after we're on, once the purse strings in, we get, uh, we'll get up to a a full flow index of about three. Um, we try to hyper perfuse the patient to try to, uh, minimize any, um, you know, lasting ischemia. We really want to get, get the, uh, uh, the 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 perfusate turned back around into a, a alkalitic standpoint. We usually uh, have a bunch of uh, uh, of, of different farm pharmacological interventions. Whether it be bicarb. Uh, once we get a heart rate back, usually within the first five or ten minutes, the heart rate will come back naturally. Um, I have to shock it, but uh, these are like you said, Joe. They're they're really really healthy hearts, um, and so there's really if we do have any kind of uh arrhythmias that's kind of a red flag for us that we need to be looking at other things uh that maybe this isn't the you know the, because that's just not been our experience that uh that that it doesn't come back into a normal sinus rhythm once you get you know back on the e c l s
1: machine yeah that's uh that's 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 just so fascinating to me and you know it makes me you know i I find it odd. You know, it's it's hard for me because no well, I'll ask a question and I think this is perhaps it's gonna be a provocative question, but has anybody ever in the standoff period that you're aware of uh miraculously recovered? Well, we
0: haven't we haven't had that uh the actually come back uh as far as you know, a, a rhythm, but they have, you know, the reason that they're not considered a brain death donor is because one of the four tests that they run, um, they, depending on how you look at it, they either passed one of those four tests or they did not fail all four of, of the, the test to, to declare them brain dead. So we have had, you know, people that, you know, they'll Brady down, Brady down, Brady down, and it looks like they're getting ready to rust. And all of a sudden they'll take a, you know, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, no one knows, but they'll take a huge breath. And then there's sats, you know, were you know, in the teens, all of a sudden the Sats go up to 60. And then, you know, your heart rates in the thirties and all of a sudden the heart rate will go back up to 50. Mm-hmm. So there is, you know, no one's actually come back uh, after that first declaration, but there is, there mm. is some um, significant waiting period, if you will, um, for, for these, you know, for these people to actually pass, uh, we we've waited up to, we waited up to two hours. I think an hour and 57 minutes mm-hmm. is our longest wait. Yeah. And and, and,
1: and it, it, yeah, that's a long time. That's a, that, that has to be extremely just uh, uh, very, uh, almost troubling. And I, you know, and, and you did answer my question, but I want to be a little more I think even more provocative than that question. Is anyone who ends up down there who is going to be donating these organs? So two questions, is there any risk at all that you th- that any of these people have any awareness of anything that's going on at that time? That's the first question.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I I will say uh, I think there you know I, I'm not a expert on neurology or and, and most of the times it, it's 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 a head injury um, um, or it's a chronic state uh, that that the patient they had a chronic disability that ended up with a, a hemorrhagic stroke. Um, the what I will say is is that, You know they they are under the care of the the hospital that they're currently in and you know that that's a i think that's one of the the paramount buffers if you will that you know we we in the beginning we would not consider doing uh, a dcd donation you know intra intra hospital the vander a vanderbilt patient couldn't donate dcd organs for a vanderbilt program to get the recipient, because ultimately if you step back away from that, you're looking at it, there's a conflict of interest. Um, you, you, have a, you have a responsibility and a duty to look out after the best of your patients. And on the other side, you're looking for the best interest of a patient that needs an organ, right? And so you're, you're in a little bit of a juxtaposition, and, and so, um, you know, until most recently, until there was you know, more people, uh, more institutions getting on board with this. And, and this, th- these talks happen at a much higher level, but it, it, there is a little bit of a conflict of interest. And so I, I think as long as you, you start with those boundaries, I think everybody is doing their, their their job. You've got someone that's taking care of a patient until they don't become a patient any longer. And then you've got a team that's trying to look after their patient that isn't necessarily at that location. But they're looking out for the best interests of their patient, and so uh, is, is the, you know prompt getting you know speed getting on safely and trying to recondition an organ that you can actually uh, you know utilize and help another patient.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's uh yeah, that's a very good answer. That's so much to think about. One of our uh, viewers said it's exciting and petrifying at the same time. That's that's how I feel. They they echoed my feelings very well. Um, So another question, if I may, and again, I'm I'm I'm, I know that this uh, may be a difficult conversation, but um, is anyone going to make it down to the room? You know, across wherever the room is, the operating room where you're going to be doing this. Is anyone leaving that room alive? Under yes. any circumstances, yes,
0: yep. So, the, the, so just like there's a, a two or five minute standoff period for that institution, there's also a, a period of once uh, they withdraw care, uh, whether you know the, the anesthesiologist or the nurse extubates the patient or takes them off their trach, there is a, a time frame at that particular institution. Uh, sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's ninety minutes, sometimes it's two hours. But yes, and, and that's what I said, the, the 80 to or 90% uh, uh, recovery rate of these organs, uh, there's, you know, generally three different ways that, you know, we don't leave with a, uh, with a useful organ. One, the patient doesn't expire, um, and, and that, that, that happens. They come down, they withdraw care, they take them off the vent, and they spontaneously breathe, and they, they don't expire. And so then they... Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately for the family, um, you know, I would say 50 to 60% of the times the families are in the operating room when, you know, when their loved one is is being withdrawn. And so it, it's really tough for the family to sit there and then they say, okay, well, this didn't happen. And so then they roll, you know, they, they take them back out of the operating room and the family goes with their loved one back to the ICU. And, um, you know, I don't know of anybody that's actually recovered that's been on there. I haven't, you know, I haven't heard any of that. From my understanding, is just they they just expired, you know, hours or days later. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's one way we don't get an organ. Second way we don't get an organ is uh, during the procurement. If you know if there's a, a complication, whether uh, you know we've had a right right ventricle puncture um, going in, uh, we've had mm-hmm. a uh, an aortic dissection. Uh, on cannulating, uh, you know, trying to get on the ECLS machine, whatever the complication is, we, we've taken the heart out. And remember, these patients were, pa- you know, they were patients. So you don't, they're, they're not set up to do the diagnostic work that a regular brain dead donor is. And so, you know, you do the reconditioning of the organ, you go to cut it out uh, and you get on the back table and you find out that they've got a bicuspid aortic valve. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you you don't know that because they're, you know, th- these patients don't get echoes, they don't get cath because that, you know, they are patients. And so that, that isn't fundamentally paramount in their, in your, or their, you know, their care. And so after the fact, you, you know, the, 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 the surgeon takes it, cuts the, the heart out, puts it on the back table to try to prepare it for transport. And the patient's got a bicuspid eric valve or it's got a thrombus um you know on mm-hmm. on the mitral valve unbeknownst you know to, to anybody and so we just walk away um a lot of people uh we, we, they've had they've had a, uh you know uh, they can visualize with the you know i guess tactically tactly, um they can visualize a uh, atherosclerosis in the lad mm-hmm. uh, you know early onset you know people in their late 30s mid 30s that actually have disease processed to their heart We've seen that. So we, you know, there's, there is a small percentage of e- when everything even goes, you know, perfect, you get the heart to the back table and, and it's, it's a no-go. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there was, uh, you know, speaking of, you know, at, you know, uh, uh, heart disease, you know, during the Vietnam era, uh, they were finding uh, doing the, uh, doing the post-mortems on some of the, you know, uh, killed soldiers, uh, 19 and 20 year olds with uh uh actual you know lesions in their coronary arteries so there are some people that starts very early on and but i find that you know do you guys do a a a bedside echo a tee to look to see if i mean you probably wouldn't be able to diagnose a uh a bicuspid aortic valve but you might be with the T E E. you should at least be able to detect a gradient Um, or to observe the mitral to see if there's anything there prior to bringing the entire team out there, because I'm assuming that's still a very big expense. There's still a cost associated with that part of it. Um, But, you know, to do an advance party to evaluate the patient to make sure there's nothing that would uh, absolutely exclude the patient.
0: Yeah, and from what I understand, you know, now, if, if it's within the scope of them being treated for whatever illness or, you know, uh, disease process that they have or whatever event occurred, then, you know, we. it's just that the outside um, hospital, you know, Vanderbilt, will, as, as my example, Vanderbilt can't request any medical treatment or you know, any uh, additional testing on that patient because they are still that they're that the hospital that there is still under, you know, taking care of them as a patient, not as a donor. And that's where the, the, they don't ever become a donor until they actually pass. I
1: and understand. so that
0: that's the, that's the, that's the kind of the tricky part is that, you know, we can't request any of that stuff because they're, it's still a patient.
1: Yeah. So there's tremendous amount of, of protocol and ethical and it's, it, it, you know, I mean, I imagine it has some ethical dilemma to it. I, I, don't know. I mean, these, these patients. I mean, they're not planning on walking out of that hospital. I mean, they wouldn't be at this point. I don't think. I mean, maybe somebody has. I don't. I can't imagine that's possible. But I, I without getting into that, I guess I had a different question, um, and uh, I, I need to try to keep myself sort of somewhat directed, if I may. Um, I've always understood that there's a tremendous amount of hormonal damage that can occur to a heart when you, if you were to just clamp the brain out, that there's going to be a lot, and I don't know that exact process, but maybe you can, you know, explain it a little bit better, but is that accurate, and, and what is it that happens?
0: Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on the, you know, on hormonal, you know, pituitary and all, all what, what gets excreted at what rates. But I will tell you this, that, um, and this is from the transmedics uh, people, they, they found it very important when you isolate the heart uh, in the OCS is that um, for DCDs only, not for the normal donation, but for DCDs, um, they they infuse uh, levothyroxane and so um i believe that's uh, you know that that's that's a, a hormone that is secreted from your brain um and so that we we do use that in our prime um and so I, that is an important um you know hormonal um if, if you will component of preserving uh, the organs, uh, at least for the heart. Um, now, we are doing some uh, studies on the lungs on we, we're not having as good a success in taking lungs with the DCD process, and we don't know why yet. And so um, the, there's a, a gambit of different theories out there. And one of those is, are you know, are, are we sacrificing um, by, by putting levothyroxine and other um components of our prime is that being harmful or are we choosing a heart over a lung and is there a balance that we can um you know develop a prime that 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 is both um preservative to to the lungs and the heart because we have yet to be able to procure a a set of lungs or actually even a single lung with the dcd uh heart procurement and we don't know why yet
1: hmm That's, that's interesting. I, I, I wonder, uh, and I'm curious, do you see the, uh, uh, on the lungs? Is it in just massive increase in lung water or what, what is it, what happens to the lungs that you're seeing that, uh, Makes them uh, uh, not suitable for transplant. What's the process that you see?
0: Well, you know, in typical lung transplantation, you run PO2s on, you know, on the, you know, the pulmonary artery. You pull what's going in, and then you look at what they're, what on the pulmonary veins, what the oxygenation is. You can, and, and see what kind of quote oxygenation and respiration that the lungs are actually doing. And we just find that the, you know, it's the the lung function is just really poor and and Hmm. there 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 shouldn't be a real reason for it now you know i have my own theory you know i i think that when when a patient expires um you're not pulling air in and and most of the time they're always on a ventilator so there's positive pressure ventilation going on and when you when you you know pull that away and, and withdraw care the 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 lung, they're compliant. it's almost like you know that, that they, they're not seeing that positive pressure. And then as you're braiding down, uh, you've got a right heart that's pushing volume through and, and the lungs aren't expanding and they're not contracting because they're not taking breaths. I just think that they really get boggy that way. and, and, and you know, we have seen that the, the worse the lungs are, the worst the really the right heart is even after we come to recondition the lungs or, mm-hmm. or recondition the organs. And so there's got to be a, uh, I think there's got to be a correlation with how bad the lungs are. Um, and I think it reflects in in what your right heart dysfunction looks like. Because mm-hmm. I, I think it's, I think the right heart is actually trying to pump, you know, against essentially a wall, if yes. you will.
1: Yes. Yes, well, I mean, that's, yeah, it dilates, and I'm sure that, uh, of course, hormonally, you could get, I guess, a pulmonary, you know, a, pul- a massive pulmonary hypertension, um, you know, vasoconstriction. I just simply don't know. Uh, I'd be curious to know what the lungs look like histologically and whether there's a big influx of leukocytes or, you know, what, what actually happens uh, to the lungs when all of this uh, goes on. So there was a question, um, and I, I, I think I know the answer, but I just want to confirm it uh, and just have you answer it. When you cannulate, you're going on, I, are you going on ECMO or are you going on full cardiopulmonary bypass with a reservoir so that you can empty the uh, heart completely? How are you doing that? Or is it an ec- a hybrid ECMO with a reservoir so that you can empty the heart?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, which what, what you talked about uh, at the last, the description. We essentially are taking an ECLS uh, circuit, a closed system uh, ECMO, a uh, centripetal head with an oxygenator with just an AV loop, and then we are cutting in a, a, a standard cardiomy reservoir um, into the circuit So we can drain the patient. It's twofold. One, we can drain them uh, right away because the patient is not the reservoir. You want to decompress, Uh, but also we have to, you know, have a way to actually add volume to, and and um, because uh, you know, on traditional organ donation, there's no, you know, as people are um, dissecting out to, to. take organs, they, they have a constant heart, you know, heart, heartbeat and a blood pressure. The patient's considered brain dead. So as they're dissecting, they, you know, you, they actually see bleeders as they're going in and they'll, they'll bovie or cauterize them going in when the very first minutes of, of, opening the chest and opening the belly to go on, there's no blood pressure. And so. Um, and, and there's an impetus to get on uh, the ECLS machine to get a blood pressure back to recover the organs. And so um, by the time everything is in the first 12 or 15 minutes, uh, it, it's kind of a little bit of a organized chaos. Um, there's a, a, a large amount of blood that is on the floor um, because nothing has been bovied, because there was nothing bleeding on the initial, you know, when you're going in. As soon as you get that blood pressure back, you're, we're trying to float an index of three. Everything's bleeding, and so mm-hmm. we 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 have four units of blood of uh, cross matched in the room from the the donating hospital, um, and so that's that you know that's part of our uh, protocol. But yeah, we have to have an open reservoir.
1: Wow, yeah, that sounds uh, man. I'll tell you what. So, how many of these cases are done in? A year in your institution, and then nationally, we'll say just here in the United States. Unless you know the worldwide numbers,
0: no, I, I don't have the worldwide numbers. I know in the last uh, 14 months, we've done 50. Uh, we're up to I think up to 62 or 63. Wow. Um, and I could be off by a couple, but we've done well over 60 um, in, in the last 14 months. Um, and nationally, uh, you know, it, it, there was only uh, two or three institutions. Probably a year ago that we're doing it, but we're, I'm getting phone calls every day from um, you know places in Florida, in Wisconsin, Maryland, North Carolina, um, you know uh, Denver. Uh, there, it, it you know it, it's starting it, it's starting to catch on. Um, the difficulty is, um, you know, I hate to say it, shortage. Um, perfusionists don't grow on trees as you know very well very well um and and so the the real issue is is that um you know the margin of your increase in cases by putting this um program you know offering this program at your institution
1: it is a it is a lot
0: of um work and 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 It's a lot of work in a small amount of time, but the bandwidth by adding this program on, you don't really get to add an FTE because the the volume of work isn't there, but it Mm -hmm. it does provide an amplitude that you're actually that you can't really account for in your staffing model because this is something that you're you're taking one a minimum of one something you know we take two, um, but you know people are talking about doing it with one perfusionist and a perfusion assistant or the perfusionist and the procurement, uh, preservationist, you're, you're taking that person out of your schedule, um, for, you know, 10 to 12 hours. And, you know, wow. right now, I don't know you, know, you I know how, you know, you have a private group, you, you don't, you don't have the luxury of, of having a normal schedule and then, you know, having normal, you know, vacation time off. And then all of a sudden something that is not within your scope of normal practice, all of a sudden you lose somebody for 12 hours. I mean it, it is an, it's, a, it's a significant obstacle to overcome.
1: right and and these these are planned but in an unplanned way. You, there's you can't just say okay, we can be there in two days. It happens, it happens now. I'm assuming that that is the way it works. Um, had a question. I think I know the answer to this, but I'll I'll let you answer it. Uh, and it's from one of our online audience. Uh, we get a lot of activity online today, which is I appreciate. I'm glad. Why are you running an index of three? I think I know the answer, but you answer it.
0: Well, we like I said, we try to run an index of three. What we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, overcome the 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 lactate. We're trying to wash out the lactate. Um, we're trying to get as much flow as possible um, to 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 quickly offset the ischemic period. You know, some of these patients, you know, w- w- were extubated. You know, like I said, we've done as long as a, an hour and fifty-seven minutes, um, and then you know we were three minutes away from having to you know go back up to the ICU and the patient expired. So we were able to get on, but you know that patient was in uh, you know some sort of state of decline and or death for an hour and 57 minutes. Mm. What we're trying to do is we're trying to turn that acidosis around as fast as possible because we only have between 45 minutes and an hour uh, to actually turn that around. Um, that's our limiting factor because of two reasons. One, it's just a, a time frame that, you know, you're in a, a hosting hospital, you're taking up a hospital suite in their OR, um, you know, if if you, you know, in all reality, if there was no limits, of course, you'd want to condition the patient over a set of hours, but you don't have that luxury. The And the other reason why you don't have that luxury is like I talked about before, the actual bleeding. Um, you're working with another team, usually the abdominal team that, you know, may or may not be as vigilant and, and you know, not quite understanding what the hemostasis, you know, what the priority is with that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we continue to lose volume, lose volume, lose volume, and then we only have four units of blood, and you've already got someone that's had some sort of a catastrophic or, you know, traumatic injury, so their crit already starts usually around 25 or 27 anyway. If you look at oof, any of the uh, the medical ICUs or surgical or, or trauma ICU data, um, most people are not getting transfused with uh, hemoglobins, you know, uh, the, the eight eight is you know fine they don't they don't transfuse until they hit seven mm-hmm. and so you get got these patients that are already starting with you know low low crits then we dilute them down with 800 of prime um in our circuit you know and then with the bleeding going on you just you just run out of volume 45 minutes to an hour is all you have
1: you probably aren't able to do this, but there's another really good question, and I'm assuming that because of what you're describing, it's not it's not feasible, but do you hemofilter or Z-buff these patients to try and manage this acidosis, this, this uh, acid-base imbalance, electrolyte imbalance, lactate clearance, all of those things where Z-buff, if you're using the right fluid vis-a-vis a a bicarb based fluid versus let's say isolite or plasmolite or normal saline which i think would be disastrous in this case but do you do you have time or volume to do that or is it just too insane and busy just managing what you're doing
0: well so we we have used a hemoconcentrator uh on a couple patients where we were we, we keep one with us um Traditionally, we don't have the amount of volume to actually do a, a pure hemoconcentration, but we have talked about z buffing um, That may be, um, you know, the next uh, more or less change in protocol uh, that, that we, we may start doing that. Um, I think, you know, without once again, we have we're packing all our equipment up and, and we're taking it with us. So. Um, Having and, and, you know, there has to be at least one Neptune or vacuum source. Um And we try to get two because there's a lot of teams in there when you get an abdominal team, the chest team, um, you know, and there's a lot of suction going on and a lot of suction going in the wrong place because I'd like to have all the blood back into my cardiotomy. So we do use vacuum assist to and, and we use suckers and we control the suckers with. The little hands or the little cricket clamps that you have um and we we turn them on and off as our surgeons are needing them to try to get that shed shed blood back in so there are some components that we you know some ways that we try to um prolong the amount of volume that we have for the length of time but um we i don't know what kind of uh you know it's it's kind of a, a the first 10 or 12 minutes are are very tenuous so uh z-buffing at that point probably w- isn't really um doable uh, to be quite honest and then that leaves you with about 30 to 45 minutes of z-buffing without um you know i, I think you could you could make a dent in it but i don't think you're going to get very far mm-hmm. um you know uh w- w- i think i think once again i think that goes back to our pediatric uh, colleagues why, why why do you why do you muff at the end of the case? Well, you you muff at the end of the case for pediatrics because it works because you can you know you can go through two or three you know blood volumes of that patient in, in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Trying to do that on on an adult, um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that you're going to get the 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 amount of Z buff in that amount of time that's going to be incrementally um, advantageous for you
1: yeah i can i can see that i could definitely see that i i wouldn't i didn't think you were i i wouldn't think you'd be able to another uh really good question uh from uh, john ingram um is when you go back on pump because you've already been ischemic and do you go on with a low fio2 and then turn that up over time after establishing flow or do you reoxygenate what's your concern about reperfusion injury of the heart and any kind of those uh react you know those uh, reactive oxygen species oxygen radicals all that stuff
0: yeah so we we use um we u- use mucomist uh, in our prime and we use manitol also we we are concerned a little bit about the oxygen free radicals but once again we don't take um, we don't take a blender with us. We use uh, the wall oxygen from the from the port of the anesthesia machine, and we're just using suction tubing from uh, the the oxygen port, and we're directly going into our um, oxygen. So we use 100% oxygen, and we go on at 10 liters of sweep a minute. That's that's what our standard is, and probably around the uh, the second or third blood gas, we try to run blood gases every 12 minutes. By our second or third, we're, uh, most of the time, depending on how uh, long the the patient took to expire, that they were in that declining phase, we're able to come down to six or eight on the sweep, probably in the 36th to, to 40th minute. But if the, patient, if the patient took a long time to expire, it, we're at 10 a sweep the entire time. That's how acidotic these patients are.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's amazing. So you're really, you, of course, you're not worried about cerebral perfusion. So you turn to sweep up, you try to blow off all of the CO2 just to get your pH up is why you're doing it. So you'll be, Correct. you'll be respiratorily alkalotic because that's just, you just want to get a pH that's going to be somewhat normal. Cause I'm imagining that you want, a nor- you want the blood pressure to go up as well, and when you're severely acidotic, it's really hard to get any vasoactive substances to work. Nothing, you just can't get any really good vascular tone. That's at least been my experience.
0: Yeah, and that's that's the other reason why we try to flow at an index of three. Everything is so dilated, uh, and, and so, and, and you will see that your, your tone. Uh, you, you talked about it exactly right, Joe your tone actually comes back as soon as your ph our ph is usually in the you know unreadable um it's below seven Mm -hmm. uh we prime with a hundred uh mill equivalents of bicarb in our that's our prime uh we're sweeping at 10 liters a minute uh for at least uh 30 minutes um and and we do have a you know our first lactate is somewhere usually between seven and ten
1: um
0: and then what we what we do like to see is we like to see that our second lactate is at least in the same single digit you know it doesn't necessarily have to be going down but we definitely don't want it to go up more than Mm -hmm. one digit and then by our, our third blood gas we want to see that it's at least lower than our first um and so that it never gets below seven or six generally but it's just trending in the right direction
1: so then after you've done all of this, you harvest the organ. It goes into the, uh, into the uh, device, the heart in the box. Uh, you could talk about that, that company, that process. And then you continue to manage that organ beating for your trip back home. So you have to take the ECMO pump you brought, the disposables you're going to leave there and get rid of uh, but i'm assuming you have to bring backups and then you take the patient with the no not the patient you bring just the organ so you don't bring the patient back with you but you bring the organ uh in a box and go back to the fixed wing helicopter and whatever process you're going to use i'm assuming it's going to be fixed wing because you're going to have a long distance travel and then go back and take it as a and you're working on it continuously. Through that process till you get back to the hospital. Then it, I'm assuming, has to be examined again to make sure it's appropriate. So you don't take the pain when you're coming back, they don't do they bring the the recipient into the OR? They're certainly not going to remove their organ at that point in time. What's the time frame from getting back to the hospital and the process there before you say we're a go for transplant?
0: So, so uh, kind of we have two different. Uh, things. The, the heart in the box is the OCS device. And within that, w- within that um, device, you can do DCD or you can do brain death donor. And primarily what you're doing is you're, you know, you, you're conditioning that organ on the way back. We use that device uh, exclusively for two reasons. If the travel time, if our flight time is greater than, uh, two hours and 15 minutes because the cold ischemic time it, just for travel, you can add about an hour uh, on, you know, wherever you're at going to get it. And then once you get back to Nashville, that's a total of an hour. Then you've got two hours and 15 minutes of actual flight time. You're at three hours and 15 minutes, and then an hour to get the, the organ in. That's, you're, you're over four hours right there. So that is our limits that if we're longer than two hours and 15 minutes in flight time, we use the OCS because we can have that organ continuously beating all the way there. And you can use it as a DCD donation or a brain death donation. What what I, what I we've been talking about this morning, it, what we do is we recondition all the organs from the head down through the ECLS pump. And then at that 45 minute to an hour mark, it turns into a regular donation where we cross clamp, give cold uh, a preservation solution, cut it out, put it in an ice bath surrounded by, uh, uh, in a cooler, and then we run with it. So um, to your point, once we, we come off the, uh, the ECLS, we clamp just like we would coming off the heart-lung machine, we clamp at the 45-minute mark and we take a video. And with no pressors, there's nothing nothing going. This is just, you want to see what the baseline is for this organ.
1: We take a video
0: and live stream it with the, uh, with the implanting surgeon. And at that point, um, they determine whether, you know, they want to proceed with the, the patient, uh, the patient recipient. The patient recipient is always in the room. They're not put to sleep yet, but they're ready to go. And then once we see that organ, um, the, the, the implanting surgeon sees the organ, he approves it visually, um, they go off to sleep. Once we take that organ in the next fifteen minutes and take it to the back table, and the procuring surgeon examines it to make sure that it doesn't have a bicuspid aortic valve, to make sure it doesn't have a thrombus, to make sure it doesn't have, you know, a, a calcified a lesion. Once the visual inspection has been done, there's another phone call that goes back and says we've got the organ out, everything looks good, you can proceed, and then that's when that's when the incision starts on the on the recipient.
1: Mm-hmm wow and then we
0: have we have our uh you know that hour window of travel time on the ground you know usually half half an hour where we're at half an hour back in nashville and then whatever flight time we have um you know to get the um it it does it really doesn't change um from a regular donation once uh the the
1: video is made so it's just like you know, and I think that, that yeah, that that's very interesting. But it brings up a, an interesting question for me. Um, and don't let me forget, I have to ask you a question from the web. So don't let me forget to do that. Uh, it, somebody remind me. Um, but if you if you get it, if you video it. They The implanting surgeon likes it, you explant it, you take it to the back table, you examine it, it looks good, there's no issues, another call gets made, they can proceed, you throw it in your box with the ice solution and so forth, and you on your way to the airport, and they're started because now your clock is running really fast, okay? You gotta get back to our 15 minute flight, if that's how long it's gonna be, and then you have to get it implanted in 45 minutes from the time you arrive, if that's gonna be the actual, if you're four hours worth of time frame, if you explant the heart from the recipient and for some reason you don't make it, which could happen, likelihood I understand is very slim, but do you guys make a conscious decision to get this organ out and the area prepared for the implant, so that when you get there, you have that extra time to get the organ reimplanted and reperfused, and just take that risk. Or do you do you do you really wait until the organ is in the room before they 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 remove the uh, the heart that is going to be replaced?
0: That that's a great question, Joe. Um, and I think that's institution institution, but we typically never go on pump, um, you know, never physically go on pump until the plane has landed back at BNA. So so and and, and the organ is the you know the 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 recipient's native organ is never you know is never taken out until the heart is physically in the room.
1: Wow. And so, okay, you know, we, that's what we I may would be think.
0: On yeah, we may be on bypass, but there is no, there is no, you know, (laughs) removal of, of the native heart until the other heart is in the room.
1: Understood. You know, you're on full
0: bypass, everything's open and ready to go. Um, But yeah, I I think that's, I think that's institution to institution, um, you know, what the comfortability and and what the, you know, what, um, you know, how things, you know, there's some organs that are, that are, you know, dropped in on, on a helipad.
1: You know mm-hmm. well that i mean that it has happened it happened in new mexico with dr hoyt i don't know if you know this story or not but they 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 took off uh from the uh, west mesa coming to albuquerque with an organ and uh they had the patient they said we're on our way and they had the patient in the operating room and they took out the organ the heart and the, uh, Dr. Hoyt and the heart and his assistant, um, they hit the side of the mountain and they all perished. And now yeah. you have a patient on bypass with no heart in them at all. And they scrambled. They actually were able to find another organ and, uh, that patient ultimately survived. But think about the stress associated with that. Uh, that's just, that was a remarkable story when I heard about that. That was some years ago. It was in the, uh. The late '90s is when that happened. I think you could look it up. His name was Dr. Hoyt. I don't remember his first name, but that was at uh, Albuquerque Presbyterian Hospital in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was a, it was an absolutely uh, 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 riveting story. Um, uh, we had a question about cytosorb. Do you, when you get on I, I, when you get on pump, do you do you see any potential value of having a cytosorb, filter integrated in your extracorporeal ECLS system so when you even though you'll have these volume issues but you won't be technically ultrafiltrating with cytosorb it's more of a flow right through it adsorption uh i'm assuming you're familiar with it so do you see any value in that because i would think there would be massive inflammatory uh uh mediators that are screaming through these patients
0: yeah. And, and I, I think there is value of that. Uh, like I said, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, the keep it simple and, and, and I, to your point, you know, we talked about why the lungs may be not working as well. Um, you know, that, that is definitely something we probably should consider.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that would be interesting. Um, Okay, so we, we we have two other topics to cover at nine minutes. One, uh, organ availability. This probably isn't going to take very long. And we'll we'll talk specifically about hearts, if, if that's okay. We could talk about lungs too, but hearts. This process exists because there simply are not enough organs in, in whole. But then also finding organs that are a match for any one person may not be in the geographical zone that's suitable for traditional harvest reimplantation. It's too far away, and that's why all of this is coming to be. What's the real, just sort of stress associated of the system? System stress uh, associated with these organ limitations that exist like what's the how many how many how many potential hearts do you need recipients that need hearts and how many hearts are available what's that ratio
0: you know i i don't i don't i don't know the exact numbers of of where where they're at I, i just know that the 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 ratio is for every one organ um that's available there's 10 or 20 people that are that are needing one Wow. Um, When it comes to when it comes to hearts. And so essentially, what we're we're not going to be able to change if you want to say that the the patients are the denominator, you're not going to be able to change that, um, you know, not for a a lot more advanced when it comes to stem cell and and maybe, uh, you know, a a substructure of, 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 you know, creating a a, a new heart, if you will, um, or Implanting, you know, some uh, some recovery, some sort of recovery for the native heart. Um, we're not there yet, so you're not going to be able to change the the the, the denominator. Mm-hmm. This, you know, whether DCD um, changes the numerator, the OCS uh, changes the numerator because now you're able to, like you said, geographically. If you're sitting in in Maryland and the you know the, your exact donor, uh, you know that, that is perfect, is in Seattle. Well, it's just not doable without OCS mm-hmm. and so, and, and, you know, you can say, well, you know, we can wait and we'll, we we'll find another heart, but, you know, with HLA testing and this matching that the, they have it down to, you know, a pretty good science on who, who really needs that, who is best suited for that heart. And so, you know, it, it, with matching and things of that nature, you're getting, you're getting years added to those organs, right? I mean, a, 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 if you have an organ that really doesn't match um, you know, with the HLA, with the size, you know, that's, that's a significant impact on the length of, of, of your, you know, your, your, yeah. your length of organ. Um, so I think that's, that's really uh, the, the next generation of things is that there's gonna be a, you know, a, a national, and I see it in you know, an international UNOS, if you will, and, and being able to go, hey, we have um, this heart in Puerto Rico. Or we have this heart in Hawaii that matches this person in Denver, and I think you know I think that's where the future lies. Is that they they get it genetically, uh, you know, down to a science, where they go, we know exactly what you know what organ um, is going to be best for you, and it's located, you know, seven hour flight from here. Mm -hmm. And but we're going to that's where
1: OCS, and I think that's where uh, some of these
0: pioneers in in this organ preservation industry. That's where it's going.
1: So in the few minutes we have left, um, how are we going to do all of this if we don't have a fairly substantial percentage of perfusionists, that want to because i calculate just very quickly your institution your institution alone requires if you say it's a 12-hour day which it seems reasonable probably it may be more than that it's 600 hours a year dedicated to just this one thing um, which is a, a large percentage of the 2080 hours that, uh, you know, is a full-time job. That's just for those 50 cases, uh, 50 days, right? Um, that's a, that's that's a lot, that's a big chunk. And, uh, you know, you're not gonna just do that for a living. There's gonna be a lot more to it than that. So, you know, as we continue to deal with our profession, you know, evolving and new schools. And I know you're, of course, the acting now acting director of the Vanderbilt University Profusion School. Anybody interested in going to school should really be talking to you, uh, because you've got such an incredible program, and you do so many incredible things. The learning what you learn there is is is, is uh, will will last. It will give you an, give you an edge in your career moving forward. Um, but uh, how do we do that if 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 uh, we don't have people that want to live this lifestyle? Number one, and number two, how do we attract people from a com- compensation perspective and also from a you know a, 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 an opportunity for the same kind of lifestyle and notoriety that other people that have to spend that much time, uh, different people in the in the process, the medical process, do we need to look at how we're doing all of this and whether perfusion should become more of a market that is cardiac surgeon, anesthesiologist, cardiologist, sort of uh, uh, patterned after versus the model that we currently use in order to be able to attract people that want to, uh, essentially you're sacrificing your life um, for, uh, for this. And what's the what's the reward other than feeling accomplished, which is important, but I don't know that that's really gonna attract the people that we need.
0: Well, I, 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 I can, you know, I agree with you uh, on all those fronts um what i will say is i i, I think it's um a, a very similar um problem that that you know we have in in some of the smaller or i, I want to say you know rural rural is a is maybe not the 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 right word but outside of your major cities there's there's perfusion going on i mean uh, and and good perfusion i mean it, mm-hmm. it, 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 the programs wouldn't be open without you know good surgeons good anesthesiologists and, and good perfusionists in places you know regionally where you know i i can just talk about the smaller hosp- hospitals and, and the smaller cities that have good hospital programs but you know um you know count town and carbondale and paducah kentucky and you know and jackson tennessee and you know you don't you don't have to you don't have to be the the nationals or the Houstons or the Chattanoogas or Chicago or St. Louis, you're talking about smaller cities that do great, great work. And, you know, I think this is no different. How did, how did we get over a period of time that you were doing, um, you, you know, 20 years ago, those programs or 30 years ago. Those programs, you know, either didn't exist or they did they were in their infancy right mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. most most cardiac surgery was, was done in big cities and and as population spreads out and there was a need uh you know people met those needs and so i think this is a uh, very similar where we are we're at an infancy we're at an infant uh, stage of you know this new type of technology this new type of service and i i think i think you know dedicated perfusions will step up and they're going to, you know, to really, to your only point, uh, you know, compensation will probably stay, you know, I don't think you're going to get rewarded, um, more for doing something like this. I think, um, I think compensation is going to be, you know, flat, the, the hospitals, you know, the hospitals, uh, are, are just going to say, you know, this is part of your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I will say is, is I think the, the demand, of the new need will be met by perfusion because it, it quite frankly it always has been um mm-hmm. you know wherever the need is uh you know there's dedicated perfusionists. there's pioneers that, that go out and do it and then you know people follow suit because they go you know i am proud of what i do Uh you know i i, I you know it is rewarding and Matt, you know also
1: it's, it's why i love you dude it is why you love me phil just Philosophically, we are cut from the exact same cloth. I'm just younger and better looking than you, but that's the only difference between us. So uh, so with that said, what do you think of this form- forum? What of this format, this kind of you know, fireside chat, round table, whatever you want to call it, discussion about these topics versus the planned presentation, kind of going through data. What do you think of this?
0: yeah i, I well I, I think you get a lot uh I, I, well i mean you, you you're you're there hosting but um i think you get a lot of live interest I, I said we've got a lot of questions or it seems like there's a lot more questions this morning on on, on the web than than typical so I, I think it's at least uh it's it sparks people's attention it's more of a conversation right it's more of a, a discussion um you know if people want you know i i i think with the internet and you know with the databases that are uh, available for all the journals and things like if people are wanting hard science i think it's available um for, for you know nearly anybody it, certainly at, you know at, at a certain price you can get it um but you know I, I think this is what is uh you know invaluable and i don't think that uh, i don't think you can you know if you're looking for this i don't think this type of format is really uh uh able to be you know easily obtained uh like the hard science that's in you know journal articles and editorials and and uh you know poster presentations of that nature yeah i I think this is really invaluable
1: i think so too and the interactivity of it and getting asked questions from online it opens it up to so many different people and thoughts and questions and helps us you know you uh to you know that, that's a really interesting idea and something may spark you know your thoughts and that you take that back to your program i think that's the whole point we all learn from each other and i i, I enjoyed this format a lot i want to do more of it um yeah. uh, last real quick question and i'm i'm assuming again the answer is yes but i want to make sure i ask it does the reconditioning organs that process of going on ecls help to improve post-transplant outcomes of course i would think yes but in a word
0: yeah it's it's funny you say that uh we we, you know there's really no uh you know set data point on hearts yet uh you know we, we haven't we haven't done enough but it's funny you say that the uh the implanting liver surgeons and the uh they they once they start to implant the organ back at the location uh the the organ starts making bile intraoperatively Wow. And, and they don't, they don't see that quite often. Um, and almost all on these reconditioned organs, um, they've, they've seen, uh, with the DCD NRP that we're doing with the, the regional con- reconditioning of the organ, they're seeing the livers, uh, start to, to, to produce bile intraoperatively while they're, while they're implanting it in, in the recipient. And that's, Even- that's, you know
1: even more so than you would see during a let's say brain dead donation of the liver yes. which you don't see yes. that that often in those
0: correct yep and, very and, interesting and, and so that that that's really the only anecdotal takeaway that you know that we've seen but the the liver teams have really really liked uh the, their, their organs that they're, they're getting from this they've made
1: comment very good well It's been a pleasure. Matt, thank you so much for another, you know, for for dedicating your time to this. I know you've got a lot of stuff going on and you carve out some bandwidth for us and I just appreciate it so very much. Uh, We will see each other again very soon, I'm sure. And uh, we'll talk about you know what we're going to be doing, maybe moving forward from here. But I, we, we all, on behalf of everyone, appreciate uh, you you finding the time to do this with us. Uh, We learn a lot, and we just appreciate you. Uh, Tomorrow, I'm going to be with. uh, I'm going to actually be remote no one is actually physically gonna be in the studio tomorrow. Everything is gonna be remote uh, because we are really busy and I have to take a trip and do something. So we're gonna be doing a similar format and uh, we're gonna be talking tomorrow about, what's the program on tomorrow? Oh yeah, disparities in ECMO outcomes. Um, you know, Matt, I've, and if you wanna join in, you're welcome to, uh, it's all remote. Uh, tomorrow at three and I'm very struck by, reading a variety of articles and finding some that say that for covid ecmo they had 90% survival some 50% some 60% some 40% i've seen our own experience which is less than 20% and how can it be such a wide uh, such a wide variation in actual outcomes, is it selection? Is it how we're doing it? You know, what are they doing that's better than what we're doing? Or is it? Does it really just come down to luck? I, I don't know. I, I really can't tell you. the, I, I don't know the answer to it. But I do know that I've been very struck by the wide vari- variation in reported outcomes with COVID ECMO and then my own experience. So if you wanna to join tomorrow, would love to have you. I certainly understand that if you can't, it's tomorrow at three o'clock, three to four, it's gonna be myself and Tammy. And if you do join, it'll be you or anybody else that may wanna join is always welcome uh, because I think it would be a very interesting conversation. Yep. Okay, thank you, Matt. Be safe. Good seeing you, everybody else. We'll see you tomorrow at three o'clock. And uh, Matt, lovely uh, office uh, you have there. I, I really enjoy it. I've been jealous ever since you came on because that looks very. It looks very comfortable. I, I really like that office. Uh, I'm assuming it's a home office, which would be even better if it is. If that's your yeah. office at Vanderbilt, I'm quitting and I'm coming to work over there it's safe to
0: say, you know, that's my daughter's desk. This is our home office. Yes.
1: Very good. (laughs) Excellent. Sounds great. Take care of yourself. Thank you. We'll see y'all tomorrow. Bye-bye.